Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And this morning, this fine Friday morning, my scholar and gentleman with me, my collaborator in the studio is Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor. And we're continuing a series where we're proposing the foundational ideas of what would it look like if we were to create a constitution for the government of these United States that would actually do the job that is what our founder said governments are supposed to do. And that's recorded there in the Declaration of Independence, where they clearly stated there is a creator God. Our rights come from him and from him alone. And the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and defend those God-given rights, which is why the session we're looking at this morning of the Bill of Rights is so critically important. Because when we look at our federal constitution, well, the Bill of Rights was an add-on, you know, uh, subsequent to the ratification, uh, the first uh, 10 amendments to the constitution were what we call the Bill of Rights. But they were not in the original constitution. They're amendments to the constitution, kind of an afterthought. Well, in, in one real sense, the agreement with the anti-federalists who were opposed to the constitution was that we will ratify this constitution if you will make a Bill of Rights the very first priority of Congress, which is exactly what they did, thanks to the work of James Madison. But a Bill of Rights really is critically important, and I think we're going to argue that it should be at the head, not some subsequent amendment, you know, tacked on at the end, because really the Bill of Rights gives us a job description of the civil government. What is government about? Government is about protecting our God-given rights. So how do we know when government protects our God-given rights? So, for example, in our current U.S. Bill of Rights, the First Amendment talks about five freedoms that are given to us by God. The freedom of religion, the freedom of speech, freedom of the press, uh, freedom of assembly, uh, and, and freedom to petition the government for a redress of grievances. These are God-given rights, and the Bill of Rights labels them First Amendment, that the federal government shall do nothing to infringe upon these God-given rights. So in a sense, the Bill of Rights negatively states, this is what government must not do, but by implication, therefore, it's being stated, this is what government must protect. These are the rights listed here, which it is the job of the civil government to be actively seeing are followed. And uh, wow, we look at today, freedom of speech, whoa, freedom of religion, freedom of the press. These things are under sustained attack from our federal government, the ones who actually swore an oath before Almighty God that they were going to uphold and defend this Constitution, including the First Amendment. Well, I guess maybe they had their uh, fingers crossed behind their back. What do you think, Phil? What's your thoughts? Well, in the, the Constitution of 1787, the Bill of Rights, or the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, is essentially an afterthought, a compromise between Federalists who thought the amendments unnecessary and anti-Federalists who would not have ratified the Constitution without a strong pledge that these rights would be addressed by the first Constitutional Congress. Both the preamble to the Constitution of 1787 and its lack of Bill of a Bill of Rights were significant departures from the philosophy of Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, which states, 
we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Jefferson's Declaration of Independence had encouraged each of the former colonies to establish its own constitution. The University of Baltimore Law Review has described the structure of some of these constitutions. The Maryland Constitution included a preamble, a declaration of rights, and a form of government. By comparison, Virginia's constitutional documents included a preamble, a bill of rights, another preamble, and a constitution or form of government. Pennsylvania had a preamble, a declaration of rights, and a plan or frame of government. Delaware, a declaration of rights, and fundamental rules, and a constitution or system of government. By the time the Constitutional Convention of 1787, all the former colonies had adopted their own constitutions in one manner or another. The states went about adopting constitutions in three ways. Eight states relied on their regularly elected colonial legislatures, renamed provincial congresses. Three states elected delegates to the Constitutional Convention. Two states, Connecticut and Rhode Island, did not write new constitutions, but instead simply revised their colonial charters. One structure dominated. The first part or article describing the individual rights of citizens, followed by a part or article describing the form of government. This is consistent with the principle of representative government. That is, that government is derived from the will of the people and not top-down dictated. The structure of the Constitution of 1787, with all of its merits, is deeply flawed in this respect. Its Article I follows the lofty nonsense of the preamble which abandons Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. It then launches immediately into the first of the three branches of government, the legislative branch. It is easy to lose sight of the concept of representative government by reading the basic constitution. It only took Alexander Hamilton three reports to Congress to convince it that instead of limited enumerated powers, the Constitution of 1787 was intended to grant the federal government implied powers. Once assumed, that was an open-ended license for the federal government, or more precisely, the governing class, to define its own powers, essentially unconstrained by the people. The so-called Federalists, who are actually Nationalists, grabbed the Federalist label for themselves, leaving the true Federalists the only option <clears throat> of calling themselves anti-Federalists. Some saw the trick that had been played, and attempted to change the labeling game to rats for those supporting the ratification of the Constitution of 1787 and anti-rats. It was a clever idea, but did not catch on among the public. This mislabeling game continued on to the war between the states, when those favoring secession were put down as states' writers, 
This made the secessionists look foolish because states do not have rights. Only individual citizens have rights. Behind this labeling game was a real contest, the contest between those who believed in a limited federal government with enumerated powers and those seeking an imperial national government. The choice was never between true representative government and monarchy. There is ample evidence that the founders had a continental vision for the United States. The only choices were between representative government based upon limited enumerated powers and an imperial government. By the turn of the 20th century, it was clear what direction the United States would take. For these reasons, the structure of the new constitution should include as its preamble statement comparable to the philosophy of Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. The preamble should be followed by a Bill of Rights and then a major part identifying the form of government. It makes sense to follow that part with a part on suffrage and the responsibilities of citizenship, including the principle that every state should pay its fair share of the cost of operating a true federation. Only then does it make sense to describe the individual branches of the federal government. The current Bill of Rights in the Constitution of 1787 may be used as the foundation for a Bill of Rights in the new Constitution. Amendment 1 may be adopted without change. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Critics of this approach may point out that this language has been abused badly over the history of the United States. They are correct, but this is where we see the limitations of the single level Constitution of 1787 and the advantages of a multi-level new Constitution. Just as the Federalist Essays provide additional bases for interpreting the current Constitution, a second level of description may be provided in a new Constitution, in this case clearly indicating that a citizen may question the legality and accuracy of an election result as an example. There would be a difference between the current approach to this interpretation and interpretation under a new Constitution. Today, we must rely upon the interpretation of political appointees within the federal system. They are free to impose their own ideological perspective on their judicial opinions. Under a new constitution, that interpretation would be constrained by the more specific language at the second level of the constitution. And the overall interpretation would be reserved to the Supreme Court of the states. The amendment uh, amendment two would read, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This would eliminate the current leading clause, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The main clause in this sentence is really independent of the leading clause, which serves only to confuse the intent of the amendment. Any qualifying information for example, convicted criminals are denied the right to bear arms, can be placed in that second level of description in a new constitution. Amendment three would read, no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war 
but in a manner to be prescribed by the Council of States. Two things should be noted in this rewritten right. The first is the reference to time of war. Today, the definition of war is virtually meaningless. The executive may initiate war as long as the requirements of the War Powers Resolution of 1973 are met. <clears throat> Here's a summary of what that resolution provided by the congress.gov website. The resolution requires that the president shall in every possible instance consult with Congress before introducing United States armed forces into hostilities or into situations where imminent involvement is clearly indicated by circumstances. This uh, provides that in the absence of a declaration of war by the Congress, in any case in which the armed forces of the United States are introduced in hostilities with situations where imminent involvement in hostilities is clearly indicated by the circumstances, such use of the armed forces of the United States in the hostilities pursuant to this act shall be reported within 48 hours in writing by the president to the Speaker of the House of Representatives and the president pro tempore of the, uh, the Senate, together with a full account of the circumstances under which such hostilities were initiated, the estimated scope and duration of such hostilities, and the constitutional and legislative authority under which the introduction of hostilities took place. Note that the resolution merely requires the president to inform Congress, and that this is counter to the original intent of the Constitution, which was to limit to Congress the power to initiate military operations. The second change is uh, the, the wording prescribed by law to prescribed by the Council of States. The term prescribed by law is undefinable. Which system of law? The law of nations, the common law, or statutory law? In any case, any legal action would currently require that federally appointed judges issue an opinion. And those opinions can be based upon the prejudices of the federal judges. The Council of States, representing the states that have entered into the constitutional contract, <clears throat> is better positioned to issue an opinion. Amendment 4 states, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the person persons or things to be seized. The idea is correct as stated, but under a new constitution, there would be an excellent opportunity to provide examples that would avoid federally appointed judges from issuing arbitrary decisions. Amendment 5 states, no person shall be held to answer for capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury except in cases arising in the land or naval forces, or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. 
The ideas in this amendment are sound and would be incorporated in a new constitution, with the exception of, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Just compensation is undefinable in an aggregate or social context. Just compensation is determined within the free market as a transaction between non-coerced parties in which both expect the benefit. The concepts of public takings and eminent domain will be further discussed. <clears throat> Amendment 6 reads, in all criminal prosecution, prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district within, uh, wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. These ideas are sound, and may be incorporated into a new Constitution's Bill of Rights. Amendment 7 states, in suits at common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. Again, the basic idea is sound, with the exception of where the value in controversy shall exceed $20. $20 was a significant amount of money in 1791 when the Bill of Rights was ratified, but it's been virtually reduced to pocket change as a result of federal government inflationary interventions. The qualification no longer serves a real purpose. Amendment 8 reads, Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. The idea is sound and may be incorporated into a new constitution. Amendments 9 and 10 are likewise sound and should be incorporated into a new constitution. Amendment 9, the enumeration in the constitution of certain rights shall not be constrained to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Amendment 10, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution or prohib prohibited by the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. There may be some value in doing an inventory of all the rights identified in each of the 50 states' Constitution. They had any not already included. A far more rewarding exercise would describe in a second-level constitutional document asserted rights that are not natural rights, but in fact, examples of special interest pleading. For example, there's no such thing as LGBTQ rights. To be a constitutional right, it must be a natural right, available to all universally. Rights may not be claimed that bring about so-called social justice, because to implement them would require aggressions against others. That is, they are individually unjust. For that reason, we do not have a right to health care. What constitutes health care is undefinable. Some people require more health care than others. But in any case, the provision of health care requires that resources be expended, and those resources have economic costs. Health care professionals, in any case, cannot be compelled to provide, us, provide services at a government-established artificial price. Finally, 
Franklin D. Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights is lofty nonsense. Among the so-called rights, according to, Rose, uh, to, the Ro uh, to Roosevelt, were <clears throat> the right to a useful and remunerative job in the industries or shops or farms or mines of the nation, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, the right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living, the right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad, the right of every family to a decent home, the right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health, the right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and an unemployment, the right to a good education. The implementation of every one of these so-called rights requires the establishment of coercive law that infringes on the rights of others. This should be recognized in the second level documents of a new constitution. Finally, there is the question of the taking of private property by government based upon the faulty concept of eminent domain. Government cannot ultimately own all land, allowing citizens to use it until the government calls it in for public use. That idea conflicts with the concept of representative government and a free people, but was typical of czarist Russia. To combat this, a new constitution would prohibit a federal government from acquiring and owning property. All such property theoretically should be owned by the people. To the extent that government would act on behalf of the people as a trustee, that role cannot be played by the federal government which under no circumstances should be allowed to acquire property based upon powers granted to it. Any federal use of property must be governed by the people through their council of states. Likewise, takings for public use by lower levels of government from the, from the state to municipal level should be based upon uniform principles established by the council of states. One will notice in many changes just described that the role of federal governments uh, federal courts, I should say, has been minimized. That is intentional. Their role has been intentionally restricted to opinions based upon statutory law, laws that are strictly constrained to a new constitution. Even in these cases, an appeal may be made to the Supreme Court of the states. The primary idea is to deny federal justices the temptation to legislate from the bench but also to make the federal judicial system more efficient and cost-effective. Finally, lifting the requirement to be trained in judicial precedent, the, judicial, the judiciary may be open to qualified constitutionalists who are not trained lawyers. Oh, amen to that, especially uh, what we see in terms of what the legal training system does today. By the way, if people are interested, I've written a paper on that. Uh, it talks about the history of what has happened to our law schools. It's called Darwinization of Law in America. You can check it out on theamericanview.com, the Darwinization of Law in America. But I agree with you firmly, uh, Phil, on, on the idea that federal government should not own property. In fact, I think 
we were better off before Washington, D.C. was created. You realize our, our government was in New York City for a time and in Philadelphia for another time. Anyway, it moved around from location to location like a vagabond. And I think that's an appropriate picture. It should not own property. We, the people, should own property. And yes, uh, it needs to use buildings. But hey, you know, some landlord can rent space for them. And, uh, you know, they, they can be given the, the very important point that they don't own and control the land and they don't own and control these United States of America. Well, I appreciate your you're going through the 10 Bill of Rights and agree with you wholeheartedly on the changes. And the uh, Ninth Amendment in particular points out that this list of rights is not inclusive. In other words, it's nearly impossible to sit down and list all of your God-given rights. Here in the state of Maryland, our uh, Declaration of Rights is what the, ours is called, not a Bill of Rights, but the Declaration of Rights includes 47 articles. That's right, 47 articles. In contrast to the U.S., 10, and and most states have uh, far fewer than that. And, you know, there's um, good, bad in, in some of those articles in, in Maryland's Constitution, but uh, it deals with issues that I think need to be included at some level. Now, as you, as you rightly point out, there may be a secondary level where some of these are spoken of. And uh, for example, I, I really appreciate the article one of the Declaration of Rights that all government of right originates from the people is founded in compact. That is a, an agreement that we have entered into founded in compact only and instituted solely for the good of the whole. And they have at all times the inalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish their form of government in such manner as they may deem expedient. And again, this is in a sense a restatement of the Declaration of Independence in part. Uh, and perhaps this could be an exposition of what that ter those terms in the Declaration of Independence means, because we certainly have a government today that thinks that, hey, you elect us and, you know, we essentially become kings, uh, you know, the divine right of kings sense, but now not uh, based upon divine right, but the right that we won the election or in the case of what we're dealing with today, we stole the election. And therefore, we have the divine right of stealing the election, that, that sort of thing. Uh, and, uh, some of the other elements of, of our, our Maryland Declaration of Rights that I find very, very valuable that the uh, uh, people of this state, this is Article 4, have the sole and exclusive right of regulating the internal government and police thereof as a free, sovereign, and independent state. Of course, that last phrase would not apply to the United States. But this idea that any police powers that the government utilizes must be under the direct control of we, the people. And of course, that's only fulfilled at the state level when you have a sheriff elected by the people and then the sheriff appoints his deputies. Well, that sheriff is directly accountable to the people who have elected him. But if you have a chief of police, you know, he's appointed by maybe the county executive or so he's appointed by some political person. And so that's his boss. He never sees his boss as the people. He's going to do what the person who appointed him wanted, wants him to do. He's not going to do the will uh, of the people in that sense. So uh, again, I'm just sharing some of these because I think these are valuable ideas. Um, and I, I, we could go on with a long list, but let me just mention one more that was particularly important uh, during the days of the scandemic. I call it a scandemic because we were scammed 
by Fauci. We were scammed by the drug companies, Pfizer, Moderna, and on and on. We were scammed by all of these people. And it's interesting that Biden has now admitted that in one statement a week and a half ago that really that, that first shot didn't work. And so he's calling for new money. Congress would give more money for a new vaccine that works. So he was sort of admitting that it didn't work. We were scammed. But uh, Article 44 of Maryland's Declaration of Rights would prevent that kind of takeover and rejection of our Constitution in a time of crisis, because it says that the provisions of the Constitution of the United States and of this state apply as well in time of war as in time of peace and any departure therefrom or violation thereof under the plea of necessity or any other plea is subversive of good government and tends to anarchy and despotism. In other words, you cannot use an emergency as an excuse to violate the Constitution, which is exactly what happened in 2020. People locked into their homes, told they couldn't you know, go outside or couldn't go to the store without the face diaper on, and they got to get these shots or they're going to lose their job, and on and on and on the list goes of tyranny that was unleashed. And by the way, it, I, I wish... It was dead and it was never going to come back to life. But the uh, current stirrings we see, oh, there's many, many cases. And, oh, people better start wearing face masks, and, you know, on and on. We see the development of, you know, uh, 2020, a second round. Oh, I get it. It's an election year coming up, 2024. And in order to steal the election like they did in 2020, they got to pull off the same, you know, control freak uh uh, aspect of what they did to we the people here in the United States. Well, this phrasing of Article 44 would prohibit any excuse based upon an emergency because you're going to have emergencies all the time. And the emergency mentioned in, in Article 44 there is war. And that's the, you know, the biggest emergency you could possibly have. Think of what happened uh, historically in that war between the states. Uh, Lincoln, the 16th president, declared a state of emergency, and he suspended all kinds of constitutional provisions, for, such as habeas corpus. That is, you have a right when the government charges you not to be thrown into prison unless there are specific uh, charges against you, specific laws that you are supposedly uh, have violated, and a process by which you will stand trial, that there's going to be a trial, there's due process protecting your God-given rights. And Lincoln just abolished that. Thousands of people, thousands of people in the North were thrown into prison by Lincoln for simply criticizing his administration or his conduct of the war, or even the idea that the war was necessary at all. They were thrown into prison, no charges ever leveled against them, habeas corpus suspended. So uh, they, didn't, they didn't see a court. Uh, they never had, uh, had uh, their day in court. They just sat in prison until later, towards the end of the war, many of them were just released from prison. This is a, a violation of very basic human God-given rights uh, that took place. And the excuse was, well, we got an emergency here. We've got a war on our hands. Well, that's why I like this Article 44 so much. It says, even in time of war, you cannot claim that's an excuse for suspending the Constitution. And the people in Maryland had a, a, you know, a special experience that many other states did not have where the war may have only peripherally uh, uh, touched or challenged them. In Maryland, it was something that divided the state right down the middle. Many, many young men went and fought for the South. And in doing so, 
they were deprived of all of their rights of citizenship. In fact, <laughs> you read the 13th Amendment carefully and, and it's like they weren't going to get their property back. They weren't going to get their suffrage back, the ability to vote, unless Congress pardoned them. If you read the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution carefully, you'll see that's there. So the fact that they believed that the idea of independence, that is, as our Declaration of Independence says, that if you come to a conclusion as a, as a society that the government is no longer serving its purposes, that is, the purposes of defending and protecting your God-given rights, and you think there would be a better government to do that, you know, let's try something different. Let's either alter this government or let's abolish it and start something brand new, which is exactly what they did in 1776. And by the way, exactly what was being done with the Constitution's ratification. They were rejecting the government initially that was the federal government the, under the Articles of Confederation and forming a brand new government. And so that happened twice in the history. And then the third time when, you know, the southern states said, hey, you know, this deal is really not working out well for us. Uh, we're out of here. We're going to form our own government, which they did. And Lincoln said, you're not leaving. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to put you in a body bag you're not permitted to leave this union. Completely unconstitutional. I know, Phil, we've already talked about incorporating this idea that the states voluntarily join this union and the states voluntarily can leave this union with a process set up by which, you know, forts and so forth might be uh, paid for. Anyway, some, some sort of thing that may need to happen in that uh, uh, departure from the union. But the sad thing to me, is that many Americans got the message from the war between the states that is right, uh, right, might makes right. That is, if somebody has all the guns and somebody has all the power and they point it at you and say, you're going to do what we tell you to do, that that is the kind of government we had, because that's exactly what was done to those southern states that said, you're not leaving here unless we kill you. And they killed 600,000 soldiers and then uh, who knows how many million civilians, more than a million civilians uh, definitely died in that war. So it's very important that we restrict the power of the government with the Bill of Rights. And so, yes, the 10 bills uh, in existence with those modifications, yeah, I'm in agreement with that. But I think there needs to be others added. I you know, proposed a few here the, this morning, but uh, there indeed are additional ones to that that I think ought to be considered as well. The difficult thing is, well, where do we find the full list of all of our God-given rights? Because clearly the Ninth Amendment of our Constitution was put in place because the fear was if we didn't write all of our rights down and we didn't put them in a document that we would lose them. And so the Ninth Amendment says, no, 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 you got the wrong theory. If we didn't list it, it's not that you didn't lose it. You have it. These ones identified here are the only ones we're identifying, but we're acknowledging that there are additional rights. However, Ninth Amendment doesn't go on to state where those rights are listed. And I think that would be an important addition, maybe at level two or, or explanatory. Uh, and the, the answer to that question, where are your rights fully listed? The answer to that is they're listed in the laws of the creator of the universe, what our founders called the laws of nature and nature's God. In other words, the Bible, which is what they were referring to when they referred to the laws of nature's God, the Bible is the complete list. In fact, it is the basis upon which any of our rights are understood. We have a right to property. Why? Well, because the Ten Commandments, the Eighth Commandment says, thou shalt not steal. We have a right to life. Why? 
The sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not murder. We have a right to liberty because not in the Ten Commandments, but in other commandments in Exodus, uh, kidnapping is forbidden and uh, a kidnapper is given the death penalty. So all of our rights, the right to property, uh, the right to habeas corpus, the right to uh, due process that the Fifth Amendment describes, all of those things are found in the Bible. So at some point, at some level, maybe secondary level, that needs to be identified because today, like you say, there's people running around claiming there's LGBTQ rights. No, no, those aren't natural rights. They're not rights of the creator. The creator said, these are the things that are right and these are the things that are wrong. It is right to not steal. It is wrong to steal. It is right to be faithful in your marriage and abide by your marriage vows. Seventh commandment says thou shalt not commit adultery. It is wrong to violate your marriage vows with sexual immorality. And by the way, that sexual immorality included not just a male and female variety of sexual immorality, but all the varieties of sodomy, the LGBTQ, so on, people want to talk about. Those are not rights. They're wrongs. How do we know? God's law, the laws of nature, nature's God spells it out very specifically for us. Uh, and so uh, the right to uh, bodily autonomy. This is also spoken of in the word of God. And therefore, no government agency can force you to receive an injection under your skin that you do not want to receive. It is not a right that uh, uh, the government has to force anything on you, particularly, uh, you know, something that is a biological weapon of mass destruction that uh, uh, is a forbidden thing in, in the biological treaties that uh, bioterrorism treaties that we've entered into with other countries. We're in violation of that against our own people here by coercing, persuading and trying to get people to inject things under their skin. We have the freedom of bodily autonomy because the flip side is if you don't have the freedom of bodily autonomy to determine whether you're going to receive a shot or not, you really have no freedom at all. You are essentially a slave where the government is in control of your body. So those are just some of my thoughts on the, on the whole aspect of Bill of Rights. But sort of and, and as you have said, we're really not going to sit and actually write the Constitution verbatim, but we are going to talk about the issues that need to be considered and entered into in a discussion and uh, hopefully a final uh, alteration or even a brand new uh, constitution that would restore liberty and freedom uh, to our land. Your thoughts? Well, we certainly are in agreement about uh, doing an inventory of all of the state constitutions to determine if there are uh, individual rights that are identified there that need to be added to the, the federal list. Um, <clears throat> no question about that. Uh, the point I wanted to make, however, is that there are limits to that. Um, whereas there are, are so many violations of the, uh, uh, the Bill of Rights today. I mean, for example, our government uh, is out there uh, just gathering all of this kind of information on us. Uh, to be used whenever it wishes to to uh, intimidate us. Well, we could talk about things like that and say that is unconstitutional. That kind of, of level of description can go into that second level of the constitutional document and can be extremely powerful. Uh, the, uh, the other point I want to make is that 
and I think you've made it as well. Government does not grant rights. It confirms from a short list, if you will, it confirms rights that are naturally given by our creator. Amen. Indeed. And that's that's where I think the big teaching moment and I hope the big aha moment uh, for most people in America will be. Because I hear people all the time talking about Second Amendment rights. And if I have the opportunity to help them, I say, well, that is not exactly correct. We don't have a Second Amendment right given to us by the government. No, no, no. The Second Amendment exists to recognize a right given to us by our creator. And the Second Amendment is designed to tell the government, keep your fingers off of our rights. In this case, keep your fingers off of our, our God-given right to keep and bear arms. So the, the Bill of Rights is, is not the, the source of our rights. It's rather a reflection of those rights that exist from the creator. And, and interestingly enough, they exist because we creatures, we human beings are made in the image of God. Scripture tells us in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, human beings were made in the image of God. They were the only creatures made in the image of God, not animals. Sorry, those who love animals. I love my pets too, but they're not humans. They do not have rights. Uh, we ought to care for them and steward that sort of thing. But rights are because we have a special status in the universe. And again, these are ideas that are so attacked by the leftists today. The leftists who want to say that, no, 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 these, all this talk about rights. And, and the astonishing thing to me is, is to see the transformation from the 1960s when all the, you know, the leftist activists were talking about freedom of speech and freedom of the press and so on. And now they're, they're, they hate freedom of speech. They don't want freedom of the press. They want to shut down anybody who will not uh, kowtow to their particular leftist Marxist dogma. Uh, so they're the opposite of, of defenders of, of the Bill of Rights any longer. But until the American people wake up to the reality that our rights don't come from government, they come from our creator. And we, as creatures made in his image, uh, therefore, we have these rights that he is the one who defines them and he is the one who identifies them. Uh, and, and that's where, again, my whether at the second level or of exposition uh, would be helpful to identify the source of these, which our founders called the laws of nature, nature's God, is the Bible. And that to many people is just, well, they, they can't believe that that's true. And I can clearly show that that is the case when you look at what our founders were reading, William Blackstone and his commentaries on the laws of England and book one clearly defines the, the three types of law. There's uh, uh, the uh, laws of nature, and then there's revealed law, which is the Bible, and then municipal law, which Blackstone said was only valid when it completely agreed with the first two. So if human conscience and the Bible say this is what's right and this is wrong, and some municipal law comes along to say, no, 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 we're going to change that, that municipal law, Blackstone said, is completely invalid, and all of our founders believed uh, that, that philosophy and that theory of government. I'm glad you mentioned the Second Amendment uh... And as, as I mentioned in my earlier comments, um, I would simplify that right and remove anything that could be uh, considered conditional language like uh, um, the need for a militia and all the rest of that. Yes, we do need a militia, no question about it. But this thought is constitutional and, and very specific and unlimited, by the way, uh, by any conditions whatsoever that we had the right to bear arms, period. End of report. 
Now, think think about all of the the legislative activity that has gone on, uh, the judicial cases uh, involved in this. What a waste of time. And by the way, you're exposing yourself to the arbitrary will of the governing class in the federal system. The federal system is as far removed from the people as any level of government. What you want to do is to eliminate all of those kinds of arbitrary decisions by whatever branch of the federal government, and all three are guilty of it, by the way. You want to eliminate those. And I've, I've made the comment that we don't just want to keep the federal government on a short leash. We want them to understand how to heal. And that's, that is the, yeah, that is the only way that we can tolerate a federal government. Otherwise, we've seen it's, it's like the, uh, the Frankenstein process. It becomes the master and we become the servants. Mm-hmm. And uh, most people in the founding era, if they heard that there would come a day where the average American family spent 50% of their laboring hours, half the year, uh, up until the month of July, spent laboring to pay the taxes for federal, state, and local government, they would say, tyranny, tyranny, that's abject tyranny. They'd never stand for it. And uh, had they known that that's what our country would wind up uh, doing, I think they would have been horrified, horrified by that idea. And let me let me just add uh, this, this thought to the Second Amendment, you know, because uh, as a pastor, when I advocate for, you know, our God-given right to keep and bear arms, people often are horrified. Oh, what, what kind of pastor are you? You know, you believe that Christians ought to, ought to carry guns? And I say, I, absolutely, because if, if they're happy to be with me at church, I tell them, you know, what the word shepherd means? It's a pastor. And what is a shepherd? He defends the flock. And that's what the job of a pastor is at, at, at church. And that's what the job of a father is at his home. He defends his flock. And Jesus actually instructed his disciples, this is Luke chapter 22 and verse 36. This is in the upper room after they finished the uh, last Supper, and Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and they were just about to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was going to be arrested. Uh, he told them, uh, this is verse uh, 36, that those who do not have a sword need to buy one. That's right. And if they don't have the money to buy the uh, sword, they're to sell their most expensive garment and go buy a sword, Luke twenty-two thirty-six. 36. So clearly Jesus believed in the right to keep and bear arms. And actually, I did a debate years ago uh, on BBC uh, with a pastorette, I guess I would call her, who was, you know, defending the idea that, no, 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 churches ought to encourage everybody to disarm. Nobody needs a gun, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I cited this passage. She immediately replied, well, don't you remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? That Jesus rebuked Peter when he got the sword out and sliced off the ear and said, yes, but notice what Jesus said to Peter. He didn't say, hey, look. The gun control authorities have arrived here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Give up your sword. By the way, the sword Jesus was advocating they, they were bought to buy was a military-grade weapon that, according to the Roman government, was illegal for Jews to own. That's right, illegal. So Jesus was telling his disciples to go purchase a weapon that this government, Rome, claims is illegal. Because why? You have a God-given right, and Rome, the government, is wrong. They can't stop you from uh, asserting your God-given right. But he never told Peter, give up your sword to the authorities because they've now arrived and they're here to gather up all the weapons. No, no, no. He said, Peter, put up your sword. 
Don't give it up. Put it up. Put it back in its sheath. You're going to need it for another time. But right now, I'm having to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world. And therefore, to stop me from going to the cross is not what you are to do with that sword. However, you are to use that sword in self-defense in, in future situations, but not here in the Garden of Gethsemane. I need to go to the cross. That's what the Father uh, has commanded. I'm going to do the Father's will. Very important. And, and it was interesting in the debate there with the BBC. I'm glad they did it live because at the same time that this debate took place, I uh, did a filming with them, uh, the uh, MP, uh, well, not Maryland, but, but NPR. Uh, and uh, they, they actually, I, th I think it's still up there online. Uh, uh, I think it's called God, Not Guns. They did a little documentary. They interviewed me. But they, it wasn't live, so they sliced out all my best arguments. You know, <laughs> they just, they just put in whatever they wanted that made my arguments not look very uh, strong. But uh, so I was glad the BBC was doing the debate live on the air, so they could not cut out anything that I was saying, so that the arguments got through it. When I said that, Jesus told Peter, "Put up your sword. Don't give up your sword." There was silence on the other side. They really had no answer. They had never thought that through because we do have a God-given right to keep and bear arms. And our founders understood this and they understood it was absolutely essential because of not just invasion of a foreign army, but especially if the government goes rogue, if the government begins to turn on the people, which is exactly what the colonists experienced with King George's uh, his, his redcoats. They turned on the people. They went to confiscate their guns in Lexington and Concord. And the militiamen refused, refused to lay down their arms and turn them over to, to, to the redcoats. And instead they stood uh, and bled and died on Lexington Greed and, and, and Concord Bridge. So, yes, I, I agree wholeheartedly. We need an understanding of the, those essential principles. Well, two reactions to your comments. And uh, I'm in agreement with, with them, of course. Um, you mentioned that today, 50% of our, our wealth that we have worked for um, goes to governments at all levels. Somewhere years ago, I saw an estimate of the, the so-called cost of the stamp tax. Now, remember, that the stamp tax really came into effect 10 years before uh, the the battles in at uh, Lexington and Concord. So uh, the stamp tax was reversed. The British realized they couldn't collect it. What did it amount to? Three percent, as I recall, of aggregate income. That is all. And that this whole idea of taxation without representation myth has grown around that, such that. Well, you have representatives now. Now we can tax tax you at fifty percent or a hundred percent. There's nothing in the Constitution that prevents that. Yeah, but, AOC okay. has proposed proposed a tax that would be like ninety six percent of certain persons. No, if you're going to be taxed ninety six percent, why would you bother working? I mean, why would you bother producing? And so she's going after the people who are most productive in society. And by the way. Those people who are most productive are usually the ones who wind up providing jobs for other people. You know, people think that government's going to provide jobs. No, no, no. Government has no money except what it takes from somebody else. You have to have producers in order to take the money that they've produ produced and even pay your government employees because the government employees don't produce anything. 
They're consumers. So, uh, you know, people, I, I, the basics of economics, as you pointed out many times, Phil, it's like so many people don't even know the basics of, of economics. And therefore, they're, they're very susceptible to these lies that somehow if the government takes control of the economy and, you know, the government is going to produce jobs. No, no, you've got to have producers. And if uh, half the people are working for the government, well, maybe that's why the other half can't keep their can't keep their head above water, because today, when you look at it, many, many people in government make far more money than they would make in a comparable job in the private sector. That is, if you add together all the benefits, bonuses, all the time off of vacation and and all the, you know, if you add it all up, they're actually they have a higher pay package than they would have if they were outside the government, which wait a minute. Doesn't that kind of turn things around? These people are not civil servants. They're the masters of the rest of us who wind up being the producers that they're consuming all of those or half of what we produce. So, yeah, the problem is our, our government has got way too big and, like you point out, way too expensive. You mentioned NPR. Uh, officially, that's National uh, Public Radio, I believe. I have an incident, and incidentally, this goes back to 2007. Uh, I wrote an article about it, about national propaganda radio. And uh, what had happened was that uh, in Pakistan, the dictator had uh, eliminated uh, habeas corpus and you know taken over emergency powers and so forth, and justified by pointing to Lincoln. And of course, uh, you could just imagine the left went crazy over that. And so NPR was out searching for so-called experts. They found some clown, pardon me, but uh, some clown who was a university uh, or a uh, supposed constitutional expert um, on the, uh, the issue of habeas corpus. And he claimed that there's nothing specific in the Constitution about um, habeas corpus. My response was, well, what about uh, Section 9 of the Constitution, which is specific? Yeah. So uh, I, I got a hearing at the first level um, with the ombudsman and, and so forth. And yeah, no question, you've got a case and so forth. And then it hit the second level and it just got absolutely quiet. They would not respond. They did their best to ignore me. But it is national propaganda radio. If somebody wants to, to read that article, just put in uh, a search on the Internet, Phil Duffy, national propaganda radio. It should come up. <laughs> Very good, because they're not about tell and they're, they're using our taxpayers' dollars to, to you know, destroy our constitutional republic, tragically. Uh, that is far too often of so many federal agencies. And by the way, that your, your comment reminds me that we ought to put something clearly in the text where it's, it's, it's clear to me in our U.S. Constitution that if habeas corpus is going to be suspended, it can only be done by the legislature, that is by Congress. Perhaps it's even better to say, yeah, there's never a time you can suspend it. But it needs to be spelled out. It's in Article 1 in our U.S. Constitution indicating that Congress alone has the power to suspend habeas corpus. But Lincoln didn't care anything about that. You know, he, he's the executive branch and he's just going to do whatever he pleases, even though 
suspending habeas corpus is never in the Constitution permitted to him. And so that, that will be something to close that door, be absolutely certain that nobody mistakes the fact that habeas corpus can only be suspended by the legislature and it would take a majority to do that. But I'm almost of the, the mindset that maybe it should never be suspended because if it is, it allows the government to uh, run roughshod over the God-given rights of the people. Well, my, my feeling on that is never, should never never be suspended, period. I wouldn't even give Congress the, the ability to do that. Yeah, because they'll, they'll use, you know, an excuse like, oh, there's a coronavirus running around. And uh, just to comment on that, if you look at the uh, death toll from the flu, the average seasonal flu, uh, all of a sudden that those numbers completely disappeared during the corona crisis and everybody died of COVID. So it was like, oh, if you just shifted the numbers from the flu to COVID, you get the same numbers, same number of people dying. And it wasn't until the shots began that the death toll mounted. And, and uh, according to the actuarial tables of the uh, insurance industry, it shot up 40 percent, a 40 percent increase in death over the expected uh, death rate, the actuarial tables that the insurance industry relies upon. So there was a crisis, well, really not, but they created a crisis with the shots and they created uh, enormous problems when they locked down the economy and, and, and told people they get, couldn't basically do anything outside of their homes. And they shifted enormous amount of wealth to those internet, uh, Amazon and Walmart and so on that they became extremely wealthy and the mom and pop businesses just crumbled and were crushed uh, by uh, the, those events. We should not allow that. Now you you have heard the story about the uh, the bus that went over the, uh, the cliff uh, and every passenger uh, was killed uh, and they were all diagnosed as having COVID-19. Yes. yes. So it was clear they were playing a deceptive numbers game to scare us all into compliance with their supposed emergency. And that's the danger of these emergencies. If you allow the government to change the rules and alter the constitution or uh, suspend the constitution, they will find an emergency. They'll create an emergency. <laughs> One way or another, they're gonna find a way around uh, being restricted to the powers that we the people have granted to them in our constitution. Well, we are enjoying this discussion and we hope you as our listeners will participate perhaps ask questions or, or ideas, and we invite you to do so by using my personal email, dwhitney, D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at theamericanview.com. That's all one word, theamericanview.com, dwhitney, theamericanview.com. And, and we invite you to, to check out the podcast because you may not be always able to listen to us at, at the live broadcast Friday mornings at 8 a.m. That broad, uh, Those podcasts can be found at 1180wfyl.com. Click on podcast. We're right at the very bottom of the list. Easy to find. We the people, the Constitution matters. And you'll find a treasure trove of resources there of exposition of the Declaration of Independence, of the Constitution, of each of the Bill of Rights. We've just kind of given you a very short shrift for uh, all 10 of those where we have detailed analysis of every one of the Bill of Rights in uh, radio shows that have been done previously. They're there in uh, the podcast. So check that out. And then join us next Friday morning, 8 a.m. We the people, the Constitution matters. <laughs>